All the latest business news from WA. Mark my words, your weekly news briefing with Mark Pownell and Mark Beyer. Welcome to our weekly Mark My Words podcast. I'm Jordan Murray and today I'm joined by Senior Editor Mark Pownell. Jordan. And today by a very special guest, Political Editor Gary Atzid. Gary, thank you. Hello, everybody. Coming up in today's podcast, Indigenous Cultural Centre, Fortescue Metals Group, Bayswater Car Rentals, Ian Burston, and our special reports on small business and the arts. But first up today, Gary, you've covered some political irritations for Premier Mark McGowan this week. Let's start to his response to some news about him attending some lavish parties in Peppermint Grove. Well, his response was quite simple, that uh, he goes to lots of events and this is the job of a Premier, that you get invited to lots of events with the various people, be they they business people, union people. Uh, That was the kind of argument. Hey, what's all this about? He took umbrage to the questioning, couldn't understand why he was being asked, but this was an exclusive gathering at the home of the biggest property developer in the state. And this was $1,000 bottles of Penfolds Grange Hermitage. The reason for the gathering was to celebrate the new vintage 2017. It retails for about a grand. So for the Premier to go to a specific event like that, it only becomes known because there's media coverage around it. Uh, Questions have to be asked. Basically, is there a perception that for a Premier who's uh, overseeing a cost of living spike in WA right now, where people are doing it tough, where the public sector is angry that they're only being offered a 3% pay rise. Let's just look at the issue of whether it's a good look for a Premier to be out quaffing $1,000 bottles of wine. So that's one point, but there's plenty of other issues here. Should it be declared as a gift? There has been an argument run that if you drink wine at an event and walk out with it in your belly, that you don't have to declare it because it's not a gift, only if you receive the bottle. That is absolute rubbish. So there's very a lot of points here around whether the Premier didn't think this one through. Can I go back? Yeah. Uh, so we're saying the experience is the gift. Well, absolutely. How many Penfolds Grange test- tastings have you been to? Well, at least one. Yeah. Right, OK. There you go. And, and if you were a public officer being lavished with that, do you feel like you would need to declare that? Well, I, that's a good question. And I guess in a sense... Does he need to declare it? Because everyone knows about it now, but, you know, like, and probably knew about it before he would have had a chance to declare it, right? Yeah. So we'll never know whether that was the case. But I guess, in a sense, there's this fine line, isn't it, between, you know, I think journalists have the same sort of positions, don't they? They get to go to things because people want them to be there for one reason or another. But also you get to sit with people and learn what they think. So whether they're, you know, at the top end of the tree or at the bottom end. So I guess we kind of rely on people to be discerning in how they do that. Uh, you know, does it matter what's presented at that, whether it's Subway or Grange? So so the Premier suggested that, you know, he gets invited to lots of things. He yes. doesn't know what wine's going to be served. I would, I would counter that. I would suggest <laughs> that when, when Nigel Saddley's holding a vintage... a vintage tasting for a Penfolds grain. It's not going to be a Goomberg. No, the people know that they're going for that. Um, So that's one issue. Look, the other thing I'll say broadly is that, you know, people might remember that in Business News magazine only in June, the Corruption and Crime Commissioner 
he made an absolute point of saying something. And I'm telling you, I didn't have to drag this out of him. Yeah. He made a point, the Corruption and Crime Commissioner, who is across many things in this state, is aware of many things that are going on in this state, and he said that WA politicians need to deal with property developers in this town at arm's length. Mm, mm. And he said that it is time for an overhaul of the political donation system which allows property developers to donate. He made very succinct points about that. The Premier should not ignore him. The Premier should learn from that because there may be a very good reason that John McKechnie is talking about issues like that. I'm just going to leave it at that. But there is no doubt that going to a private home of a property developer who has all sorts of agendas on the go, um, perception-wise, at the very least, is not a good look for a Premier. Add to that the fact that it's a 1000 bucks a bottle and you've got public service workers rallying on the steps of Parliament a few days later saying, you know, please give us more than 3% pay rise in the richest state in the country with a $5.7 billion surplus. And I think there's a bit of double standard happening here. And I think the Premier should really take a look in the mirror and realise that he didn't need to go to Nigel's that night. Yeah. No, no. Fair <laughs> points, Gary. Fair points. Sticking with the Premier this week, yeah. uh, and in a preview of what's going to be in our next edition, which is our Monday, you've written an opinion piece about this. This is the ructures between Basil Zemplis and Mark McGowan, and particularly in regards to the announcement of an Indigenous cultural centre and the fact that Basil Zemplis wasn't in attendance at said announcement this week. Yeah, this has become a, a, a joke. Uh, this is a bad situation, and this is basically the Premier's office and the people in it and uh, the Lord Mayor are at loggerheads uh, over a few issues, uh, going back to the Wacker ground redevelopment where the City of Perth changed its mind and said it wouldn't go along with the upkeep of a swimming pool as part of that development. It would chuck in $25 million, take it or leave it. That really did annoy the Premier, and he probably had good cause because he thought they had a deal that was done. Don't forget, you get a new council. New council has different ideas, so they changed their view. Uh, That rankled the Premier, no doubt about that, uh, and Rita Safiotti as well. Then you have this scenario where they have the government has an absolute belief that Basil Zemplis is going to make a run for the Liberal Party at some point, possibly before the next election, and so they're keeping him at arm's length. They're they're, they're, you know unlike property developers, they're keeping him at arm's length, and they are uh, not they are deliberately. They can couch it any way they like. They can spin it any way they want. They are deliberately not inviting him to an event like the launch of a Aboriginal cultural centre development, which is going to be built on a City of Perth managed car park just near Council House. So you've got situations where the Premier's doing that, getting asked why the Lord Mayor's not there. Then the Lord Mayor's calling a press conference 300 metres up the road to talk about the same issues. It's just silly. It's childish. The way I've referred to it in the column coming up is is an episode of Seinfeld where Jerry wasn't invited by his dentist to a party that his, all the others were, Elaine, George and Kramer were invited to and the sort of machinations around that and it's just stupid and uh, if I was the Premier's office and I was the Lord Mayor's office, I'd make a phone call to one another and say let's stop it because it detracted big time from the actual announcement which was fair enough that Finally, we're going to get an Aboriginal cultural centre. Well, I, and I was going to ask that, Gary. I mean, it's almost counterproductive because by not inviting him, he's got more he's got more airtime, in a sense, than he would have done if he'd been there. And, yeah, it's been a big distraction from what is exactly. quite a great initiative, I think. Oh, it's a long overdue initiative that we would have a place, a big facility, uh, with, you know, with great architecture that would stand out and represent the, the, the culture 
of Indigenous people in this state uh, going back, you know, 65,000 years. It shouldn't become about whether... And look, OK, yeah, journos ask the questions because we notice it's conspicuous that mm. the Lord Mayor's not there because he hasn't been at other things. So it detracted from it. And to give you an idea, I mean, the West, you know, become pretty woke these days on these kind of, you know, Indigenous issues and so on, fair enough. Uh, they they basically did a 35-centimetre story which talked about how the, the Lord Mayor was blacklisted mm-hmm. from that um, conference, from that uh, press conference, uh, and, you know, mentioned a little bit about what the actual uh, press conference was about, which was this, you know, big, you know, maybe four or $500 million Aboriginal cultural centre mm-hmm. that's going to finally be built near the river. Uh, it, it got, you know, sort of a, a very sketchy uh, sort of view from the West, and that that just detracted from it. The Premier's office should be fuming for that because it, it missed the mark. Yes. But maybe the Premier's office need to have a look in the mirror on that one as well. Yeah, no, no. I, I think you're right. And uh, it is a shame because it should have been a almost bipartisan, this is a big thing. Yeah. And, you yeah. Know, I think the comment was from one of the politicians, we don't want another bell tower. Well, that was a very partisan issue, if you you remember oh, yeah. that. I mean, that yeah, got all about yeah, Richard Court yeah. and what Richard Court wants. We don't want the same thing to happen with this Indigenous no, centre. No, no. So let's just, you know, whatever whatever Basil Zemplis may or may not be doing in 2025, and, and I don't think he has, has an idea at the moment, to be blunt. Um, it, it, look... There is no doubt the Lord Mayor would normally be at such an event. Of course. So let's just stop the nonsense, uh, get along, and and don't give journos like me <laughs> a chance to talk about issues like division between the two offices. Let's just get on with it. When did woke into your lexicon? Woke? I don't know. I actually, it's a it's a it's a word now, isn't it? But um, it is. It's a much maligned word. I don't want to hear it come from your mouth ever again, Gary. Okay, all right. I'll Consider yourself on notice, Gary. Your time today has been appreciated. We'll be back momentarily to discuss business with Mark Pownall. We understand that business relies on being informed. That's why Business News is your most reliable source of news, industry insights and business connections. To stay fully informed, we encourage you to subscribe to our emails, flick through our magazine and visit businessnews.com.au for daily news updates. It's the best way to ensure you have the information you need to be future ready. Business News. More news, more insights, more connections. We're back with Mark Pownall discussing the week in business. And first, Mark, I want to ask you about a story that broke on Friday after you taped the previous episode of Mark My Words, and that's news that Fortescue Metals Group has sought environmental approval to expand its Iron Bridge project. Yeah, look, I thought this was worth mentioning. Uh, I think um, Iron Bridge has been one of those sort of problematic projects because it's had many cost blowouts over the last few years. Uh, but it's also really important because it's a magnetite project, uh, which is something that's not a big thing in Western Australia. Uh, we do have Citic Pacific have got theirs, uh, the Sinai project, but this is, you know, the first sort of one where it's an Australian company doing it. Um, and I guess it's some good news because really the, the news around this project is that it is, you know, got cost more and more and more, and I'll just I'll detail that in a minute. But um, they're, they're, they're actually looking for permission. You know, it's a fairly basic process of seeking permission to clear about 600 hectares of vegetation. And, you know, it is out in the middle of nowhere in the Pilbara. But uh, that's a, that's a, that's a um, mine area increased by nearly 30%, which is, you know, quite significant. Um, and they're basically suggesting that that would then um, allow them to 
get a better return on investment. And I think that's this is part of it. The blowouts have have required them to actually try and make it a bigger project now to get a greater return. But I'm sure they would have done that anyway. They're just bringing that forward. Um, so they're talking about, uh, I think it's 1.6 billion tonnes. So, you know, it... it, it as in reserves. So it's quite something significant. And and for the listeners who don't know, and look, I'm no expert on this, but magnetite is generally, it's different. Uh, the ore has different um, properties and it requires a higher level of processing just to make it, uh, to get it to a, a level of iron that makes it worth shipping, right? That's part of it. So it's generally considered low grade and it has elements in it that make it, a, it it's a different process. Um and look, just to document some of those, uh, it was originally a two point six billion US project. What is um, it now? Three point eight. It's now three point eight. So it bumped up in February. So about eighteen months ago, it bumped up to three billion, and then about May last year, it became three point five, and then you know there was various amounts of speculation later this year. But uh, they certainly confirmed, I think it was in July, that it was between 3.6 and 3.8, which kind of makes me laugh because the you know FMG said it'll be between 3.6 and 3.8, but now everyone refers to it as a $3.8 billion project. Um, but look, it, it is significant. Uh, and, you know, it, like, uh, you know, in some ways, some of that cost uh, has... The blowouts there have been, you know, we've seen people lose their jobs over it. We've seen, you know, bonuses not uh, given to executives over it. So it it is a it is a major thing, but it's also a major, you know, a kind of enterprise within FMG because we, we always hear about their future industry side getting into all the renewables and everything like that. But this is actually uh, something that is, it's much more mainstream in terms of, mining but it's not that mainstream in australia because we just don't do it some lighter news now and a big name in events promotion and a car rental boss are in court over the sale of a cotazone mansion tell me about this yeah well i don't think they'd consider it lighter news jordan <laughs> but um yeah you've got uh veteran perth entertainment promoter brad mellon i think everyone knows that name uh and he's he's in a legal battle with the bayswater car rentals dirk clark uh, now, I don't think that's a name. Most people won't know Dirk Cluck, but Bayswater Car Hire. No birds. No birds. People will remember that. It's been advertised like that for many, many years. And, uh, well, we'll come back to that in a minute. But, look, I guess where where the news is is that there's a, they're having a disagreement over the purchase of an $8.2 million Cottesloe property. Uh, and, basically, Mr Mellon says that uh, there was an agreement for Mr Cluck to buy the property. Uh, now, Mr Mellon's apparently bought it, or he and his partner bought it back in 2005 for $3 million. So, you know, he's looking at a healthy capital gain on that one. Uh, and, you know, there's only so many buyers for this kind of property. Been on the market for Certainly a while. not you and me. Yeah, well, you know, speak for yourself, John. <laughs> um, but... Uh, anyway, they, apparently they agreed on this sale price. Anyway, this is what it's alleged, and it's in court, and of course it's in court, so we'll be a little bit cautious about how we talk about this, but, uh, and, and that they were going to, the Mellons were going to, or Mr Mellon was going to retain t- a tenancy in the, in the uh, property for 12 months, uh, and Mr Cluck was going to pay a $300,000 deposit. 
Um, and look, the allegation is that the down payment was never made and uh, he's terminated the contract and, you know, suing for damages or loss. Now, uh, you know, look, really it was an opportunity to talk about no birds and Bayswater Hirecast, to be honest, because I don't, it's a business that's been around forever and, you know, I, I, I never remember anyone talking about it. I never knew who the owner was. Um, and, uh, look, there was just this little bit, you know, doing my research around this, because uh, I think Bayswater Hirecast actually operates nationally. Um, but uh, I've always wondered where the no birds line comes from. I kind of had a feeling about it, but, you know, it was sort of no glamour, no glitz, you know, no no added extras was always kind of the view. Uh, and we did find uh, in the look in looking around about this, there was there was an equal opportunity tribunal matter in 1997 that involved Bayswater hire cars, and someone took them there on the basis of their advertising. Um, and uh, but it was interesting. It said in there that the uh, the no birds theme is a continuation of a series that we've used for many years at that time. And it, the relevance of no birds is that Bayswater saves money by not employing delivery girls. Mm. Um, and most people understand the inference intended to uh, intended and appreciate the humour. And he made the point that even back then, 40% of our clients and half our staff are women. So, you know, uh, we've already used the word woke we did. In, in here so <laughs> today. Uh, so, you know, even back then. It was a it was an issue. Uh, anyway, look, I I don't uh, you know we'll we'll wait and see what happens with that matter. Hard hitting analysis as always on Mark my words. Mark, some sadder news now. Uh, Mark Byer wrote an obituary for Ian Burston earlier this week. The former head of iron ore at Rio Tinto. I was just hoping you could reflect on that for a few minutes. Yeah, look, uh, Ian Burston, major player in the mining industry in Western Australia, um, well nationally. Uh, died uh, this month, uh, aged 87, um, you know. So uh, a lot of uh, his contributions uh, go back to, you know, the 70s and 80s. Um, and I think that's where, if you look at the two big roles he had uh, that would have made him who he, you know, like really cemented his place as a sort of doyen of the industry was he was... Um, he was the managing director of Hammersley Iron, which was Rio Tinto's iron ore business, right? So, you know, and, and uh, he, I think he started, he was actually um, Melbourne-born and uh, came out with, uh, came out to WA with CRA uh, as an engineer. And then, you know, that CRA became Rio Tinto. And then at some point in the 80s, he took over the management of Hammersley Iron, and they're still, you know, if you go up north, well, I've got a, I've, it's been a couple of years, been a few years since I've been up there, but there were still trains with Hammersley Iron on the side of them, uh, and then after that, uh, he was the inaugural chief executive of Kalgoorlie Consolidated Gold Mines, which was the consolidation of those mines at Kalgoorlie, which became the beginnings of the super pit. Uh, which, uh, you know, is now, well, still going and is much, much bigger than it was when uh, he started that. But but prior to that, it was a series of different mines and companies that then became one to basically turn it into an open pit mine and uh, and, and, and extract the full value of what was previously underground workings. Um, He's also, I think people um, who are a little bit younger than he will remember him 
for a couple of key ASX companies that he was on. So he was um, he was uh, he was managing director of Aurora Gold, which was uh, focused on Indonesia gold mining, and really, um, in fact, I'd almost forgotten about this one. He was um, also managing director of a Midwest iron ore miner called Portman Portman Mining, which was uh, really quite an important company, sort of. I guess late 90s or turn of the century, uh, early 2000s, when that development of that uh, Midwest iron ore precinct, which which had some history going back a few decades, but it kind of been left in hiatus for quite some years, and then and then as the iron ore price came up, it was became a very important, um, very important area. And look, he's also been on boards. He's been on FMG's board. He's been on Mincor Resources, NRW Holdings, uh, a bunch of. Index, which we, you know, had some news on just recently. So he was on a lot of boards and he was he was also, you know, uh, on the Waters and Rivers Commission and the Broome Port Authority. Um, he was, you know, sort of named as, you know, like one of the greatest, you know, g- given that sort of great contribution to mining in various awards. And there was one little incident which I had really forgotten about. He was, uh, he was ta- taken hostage by pro-Chechen rebels whilst attending a mining conference in Istanbul, in Turkey, in 2001. So, um, you know, <laughs> that's a, you know, mining has all sorts of interesting um, additions to your career and, uh, and and he was big on doing business in Africa, but this was actually, you know, in Turkey. Um, anyway, he survived that, obviously, and uh, no one was harmed in that, in the, in that actual incident. But anyway, uh, a, a great contribution and just uh, worth remembering, and I think Mark wrote a great piece on him. Mm, a life well lived in our thoughts with uh, Ian Burston's family. Now, the latest edition of Business News is out on Monday. It features interviews with Multiplex National Boss John Flecker and Mark, an interview that you had with LWP Group Executive Chair Danny Murphy. Uh, it's also got some features covering arts and culture in Western Australia. That was done by our journalist Madeline Stevens. But first, we're going to discuss one by senior journalist Matt McKenzie, who leads the features with some broad analysis of small businesses and franchises in Perth. Yeah, so uh, look, uh, he, he, Matt has done a, he's done a, I think he's got an interesting take on what is a really difficult subject, you know, small business, it's just where do you start? It's, it's massive, it involves so many different types of businesses in so many different fields um, and as you mentioned, it goes everything from franchises and very retail to, you know, people who run small industrial mm. companies doing all sorts of clever things. Well, he makes that point as well that there's really no narrative through line with small business. As much as we've lumped them together, it doesn't appear as if there is any defining aspect of the sector. No, and look, you know, I guess, I mean, I would say the defining aspect is typically, obviously, SMEs are generally privately owned and they, if you have, if you ever get that one message from SMEs it's it's that it's much more the grind of tax and regulation and difficulties in finding employees and those things so that common thread that are basically across a bunch of individual business people or their sometimes small partnerships as owners of a business and having to bear the brunt of you know what is difficult things to manage and that that's where i think you draw the line to sort of larger medium-sized companies up to large businesses where they tend to have greater shareholding they tend to have uh, professional management 
and there tends to be some dis- and they tend to have the um, ability to uh, have all the resources to deal with things like regulation and you know it, it, it's just a different it's a very different mindset that's how I discern the two um, look M- Matt took a different approach he walked the streets of uh, the CBD uh, he chose Barrack Street um, which is kind of like a bit of a a, a, a line in Perth these days. It used to be the centre of Perth, but now it's very much sort of at the the what do we call it? The eastern edge mm. of the of the main CBD. So you've got all the the real um, professional end is now kind of further west, and then you've got the retail heart, and then and then it fades out and is different as you move into the east side of Perth. I think, um, and uh, so he walked the streets there, and I think. What he says is mixed results. You've got companies, businesses that are booming and, you know, packed with customers. You've got businesses that can't find staff, you know, help wanted. They've got customers, but they haven't got staff and that's their biggest problem. And you've got next door a business with for lease and they can't, you know, the landlord can't rent the property. Uh, And he makes the point that I think uh, he's done a, uh, he said about a quarter of the tenancies on that, strip in the CBD are empty and that's about right. It's 28% of the city, which is, he points out, the worst retail vacancy uh, statistic in the country, in the CBDs of the country, which is remarkable given the lockdowns of Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, We didn't have lockdowns, but because we've got so many people, well, we did have lockdowns, but they were minor by comparison. Um, And look, he's, uh, so he's he's gone and talked to some of those businesses um, and he's got a, a great uh, a great chat in this feature with a group a company called La Vietnam, mm. which is a, <laughs> a, a business news favourite. I believe. There you go. It's a Vietnamese uh, food joint, uh, and he's talked to them, and that's a great piece on in its own right. Um, he's also just looked at a few. Uh, you know, he, he really has taken the statistics, and it's one of Matt's strengths. He's very good at the economic side. He's got all the statistics there so we can see the pressures and how they work and how they compare. And obviously, uh, you've got uh, labour shortages, the shortage of people, not just expertise and skills. Now it's just a shortage of people that's really hammering the small business sector. And again, this comes down to they've got to compete uh, with big business, which often has the ability to get the checkbook out and do things mm. um, because they have access to capital in many cases where, you know, small business relies on the owners and and the cash flow within the business. Um, not always, but, you know, generally. So uh, pretty interesting there. Um, look, there was one, you know, he does kind of go uh, off the reservation slightly and look at, you know, for instance... The, there are businesses that close and, and the closure are not stuff that's just happened this year or even from the pandemic. He, he mentions a group called Claremont Tableware, four decades operating at a Bayview Terrace. It went into liquidation a month ago. Um, you know, and it's, and it's, why did it go broke? You know, it's like, a, it's like a death by a thousand cuts. Yes, it's lost uh, customers to online shopping and I can imagine part of that would have been the uh, pandemic, which has shifted things there. But, you know, it also wasn't part of the new Claremont Quarter redevelopment, when I say new, you know, when it was new five, six, seven years ago. Um, and so it's lost, you know, it, it's gone from being in the centre of that Claremont shopping area to on the side of it. And then they've changed the parking and the traffic route. So it's just, it's ended up in a backwater part 
by comparison. And, you know, as a result, it's gone under. Now, you know, maybe the owners didn't evolve and move the business, didn't see it coming, who knows. Uh, but it is one of those things that we do see in small business, that change. Mm. Um, and look, another thing that uh, uh, Matt mentions is the great resignation. And again, we think of this as um, people, employees. This has been a, a big business issue from COVID where employees have looked at their lives and gone, why do I want to do this anymore? I'm not going to work for the man anymore. I'm going to go and, you know, do something different. I'm going to work less. I'm going to change. I'm going to pursue my own dreams and maybe even go and start my own business. But the flip side of that is that according to, you know, well, we've got Fremantle Chamber of Commerce Chief Executive here, uh, Denisha Quinlan, talking about this. But, you know, there's some, um, it's more anecdotal that for some business owners, they've had enough. You know, they've run a business for how long and COVID comes along and it's knocked the stuffing out of them. And they've decided to do the opposite. They've decided potentially to go and get a job, you know, go and get something that's more secure, much easier, uh, that puts, you know, food on the table of their family without them having to risk it day in, day out. And, uh, you know, like, so I guess that was interesting to me that he's explored that theme a little bit in here. Um, it's just, you know, that's a, that's a challenge that I guess, um, I think I'm sure individuals throughout history in small business have dealt with that. It's just that potentially COVID's brought something um, brought something forward, you know, accelerated something or made it a bit more of a collective thing or something bigger than we're normally used to. Mm. There's a few points there. And I mean, the first is that uh, that wage pressure that we were talking about there, particularly because there's not that pool of insecure workers to draw from for small businesses. And particularly there was some retail and hospitality outfits that I know Matt was speaking to. Yes. I mean, I tend to take the view of that, that you know, Cry me a river. If, uh, if you can't deal with wage pressures, then get out of the kitchen. But certainly I can appreciate that if large corporations are putting that pressure on smaller businesses to meet those wage demands, uh, that probably is quite difficult. In addition to some of those other structural difficulties you discussed before, I mean, Claremont Tableware, it, it's probably just an unfortunate turn of events and there's probably things there that you sure. can't foresee. Yeah. And there's probably aspects to that that are outside of their control. They probably can't afford to pick up their business and move it to another. <laughs> yeah, and look, you know, I, I, the detail isn't there in that one, but, you know, potentially some, you know, family owns that and the kids don't want to take it over. And, mm. you know, that that's that can be part of that succession planning can can also be part of it. And I guess there as well, that ties into the cyclical nature. And I think Danica Quinlan from the Chamber of Commerce in Fremantle touched upon this, you know, at the minute Fremantle's going through its gentrification revival, people are rediscovering it. And that's probably because rent is lower in the area because it's been undesirable for a period of time. And that's where you're seeing a lot more hospitality businesses. You're seeing a lot more foot traffic and you're seeing a lot more residential infill in the surrounding suburbs. And obviously that's had a negative impact on Perth in terms of visitation. So to some extent, again, these are things that are outside of people's control. And I think Matt did a good job of respecting that and understanding that, you know, for a large extent or to a large extent for these businesses, these pressures are outside of their control. They can't be helped. And to some extent, there's not really much use in whining and complaining about it, but there's obviously use in looking at it and paying attention to it and trying to appreciate the difficulties that do face small businesses, generally speaking. Yeah. And look, I think I go back to the point that, you know, we've learned that, you know, you talk about businesses reach certain sizes and then, you know, like, they sort of talk about you get somewhere between 40 to 60 employees, you can employ an HR person, but you can't, you know. And, and that's the point with small business, that when you're small, you've got to do all this yourself. Mm. And every time there's a new regulation, and so you can talk about 
wages, but wages are only one component. And if the if the if the owner is spending, you know, hundred hours a week working on their business and dealing with all these other matters, and the, and 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 the margin that what they earn, the profit they earn, is barely enough to make it justify that. And then someone comes along and says, "Well, wages must go up." then that just takes away from the profit they earn or they put up their prices and risk losing customers, in which point the people whose wages just went up may lose their jobs anyway. And look, just to mention, Jacinda Burton's also talked about uh, pressure in supermarkets, specifically looked at that. And then we do have a list here of uh, WA's largest franchisees, franchises, uh, which you know hasn't changed much and certainly hasn't changed in the last year. Uh, Jim's group, Janny King, Clean Tastic, Subway, Puma Energy in that in that order. Then there's been a bit of movement under that. So we've seen Domino's jump up, Red Rooster's gone up, Baker's Delight's gone up, Dome's gone up, Pool Works Corporation's gone up, Chicken Treat and Housework Heroes. So uh, it goes a long way to someone who's actually fallen down the list, which is Smartline Personal Mortgage Advisors. So it looks like maybe that's a you know, I don't know why they've got less franchises or maybe they've got the same number or maybe they didn't grow as much as some of the others. So there's been some significant growth out there in a bunch of franchises by the looks of things. Mm, indeed. Turning the page and we're looking at some work by Madeline Stevens on arts and culture and in some ways it's actually very similar to the small business sector. Yeah, it is actually. Um, uh, the, the, lots, of those, lots of those pressures and it's very COVID related and I think the arts sector has probably experienced COVID. Some of the experiences of COVID are similar, but it's been more devastating and much more difficult for them to uh, revive because in many ways they were more marginal as operators in terms of, you know, the margin they operate mm. on. Well, often um, they just operate on government funding or philanthropy, so... Yeah, and, and, and also, yeah, but they also, you know, it, it, it's, it's people who want to do something rather than, you know, a small business where that's someone's livelihood and they'll get it going again as soon as they can. You know, there's, there's a lot of other elements to this. Um, look, she begins this with talking about the change that's taken place here, and I found that really interesting. So she makes the point that if you look at the top 20 arts organisations uh, in WA, 10 of them have new, relatively new CEOs. So there's been this change of management. You do see this in industries every now and then. You get a a kind of generational shift. Uh, you know, co- uh, well, companies like West Australian Opera, um, West Australian Symphony Orchestra, Black Swan Theatre Company. In fact, Black Swan's had two new CEOs in two years um, as examples of that change. Um, and, you know, I think, is that COVID-related? Potentially, uh, you know, but there may be other forces involved as well. But I'm sure that it will come at a time when, you know, many of these theatres and places couldn't be open. See, again, it's different than small business. In the lockdowns, lots of small businesses were shut down for the lockdown but got back open again. But in theatre and the arts, because you're planning, you know, you're having an event six or eight months' time and you're selling tickets, it's way more problematic. You actually, many of these groups had to shut down operations for long term because of the nature of the business they're in. Um, and look, there was a point made that that's caused a burnout, which does sound fairly similar to mm. what we talked about, that great resignation. There's been a bit of burnout across the sector as people who have you know, potentially devoted their lives to an area 
maybe they've accepted that they're not going to earn that much money, but at least they're going to be doing something they enjoy. And then they find themselves working twice as hard to do nothing just to keep things alive. You can sense how that, you know, and working with less people. And again, you've got all the skill shortages and all the issues that are occurring across small business. Um, so that, that's been raised there. Um, nevertheless, Maddie brings up something that I found really interesting. There, there are still groups out there looking to expand. So, you know, it's not all negative and it's not all burnout. She talks about uh, the Festival of Perth trying to become more all year round. Uh, she talks about the Bustledon Film Festival, which has broadened its geographic spread. I think it did uh, had uh, some stuff going in Albany, for instance. Uh, she focuses on a small group called Theatre 180, which I don't not really aware of this group but they were doing oral histories and had an audience that was largely largely seniors they've branched out and you know they did albert facey's a fortunate life so you know you're seeing you're seeing growth just notwithstanding the difficulties it's one of those interesting subjects where and, and this applies thing to charities which maddie also covers where the operation of your business or the business model itself isn't necessarily tied to your productivity or what you're delivering your output it seems to be that disconnect that can make situations where for instance it seems that maddie's profiled a lot of great stuff that's happening in the sector but for the reason i just said it's not direct. It's not directly tied to financial results. It's not directly tied to your income, and that can obviously be difficult, and it can cause a lot of strain for these organisations. Absolutely, uh, you know that's a pretty good summary. Uh, look, Gain, you know she, she, we've got a great list here from our data and insights. Um, the largest arts and cultural organisations. Just noting that uh, we have a new number one, uh, the WA Museum, Boulevard. Uh, it, it, I think this is the first full year of operations um, and obviously since the new museum opened, I mean the museum was there before, uh, so their, their revenue at $46 million, uh, compared to $30 million the previous year. So clearly that new museum has had significant impact. Uh, the foot traffic, the, you know, the sales in the shop, whatever it is, the sponsorship uh, has had a big, big change, whereas the number two... Well, the new number two, uh, State Library is down slightly in revenue to around $31 million. Uh, Yeah, look, basically, there's a great list here. I'm not going to go into it in detail. People can go and find it online or they can read, a, read about it in the, uh, in the magazine, which is out on Monday. Uh, and just along with that, um, Maddie did a tour of the Pilbara with an uh, arts organisation called FORM, um, art and design organisation and so she's done a great piece on uh, Aboriginal art centres up there and the impact they have. They're worth $30 million a year at least according to some numbers that are now about a couple of years old. Uh, so she's talked about the impact of art in the Pilbara, Pilbara art and, uh, and also I might add there are some fantastic photographs of some of the artists in here and their work so uh, really worth uh, having a look. Yeah, fantastic work by Maddie. Hopefully you'll join us on Wednesday for our Success and Leadership event with Perth Airport Chief Executive Kevin Brown. Looking forward, our next event is a politics and policy breakfast with Kate Cheney MP. Uh, that's also at Crown Perth and it's Tuesday the 20th September, so make sure you get tickets to that one. In the meantime, make sure you listen to At Close of Business as well today and we'll see you next week. Mark, thank you so much. Thanks, Jordan. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au.